this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. So are you getting bored yet? It's okay, you could admit it to me. I get bored sometimes. I mean, after a while, five, 10, 15 years of running the same business, doing the same thing every day, it's bound to get boring, right? Especially for an entrepreneur who is motivated by the new thing, the creative spirit that brings energy to a room. It's really tough to do the same thing every day. And I think it's natural to get bored, which is exactly the space that Sean Oshman found himself in. So Sean started a company called I Support You. And after about eight years of running it, figured life might be better on a sailboat. And that's exactly what he decided he wanted to go do. He decided to sell his company and go live with his fiance on a sailboat. Here's to tell you the whole story is Sean Oshman. Sean Oshman, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me about this business, I Support You. I guess the name was indicative of what you guys did, but maybe describe for folks who don't know. We did IT for businesses. After a number of years, we focused on the B2B market, and every company needs to access the internet and be able to use technology. So I Support You made it suck less, was our tagline. (laughs) Make it suck less. Love it. And you were based in Colorado? Yep, in Boulder, Colorado, which is a, a growing city. Lots of tech startups are popping up here, including Google building a campus smack downtown. Yeah. So, so you would be what a lot of companies would think of as, as the IT guy. Like you would help, you know, network the computers if they needed it, get their Google apps set up, uh, troubleshoot. Is that the kind of thing you did? Exactly. There would have been a balance of consulting in order to determine the right tool to solve the problem. And then there's deployment and support, which is where a lot of the companies like uh, ours will focus. And then training, because implementation of a new technology uh, with users is really important. They need to understand how the tool works. Otherwise, they don't think it's a good tool. Got it. And how did you structure your staff underneath you? Did, did I mean, did you have sales people doing the selling and, and IT people doing the delivery or did you have both? Like how did, how did you staff it? This was a very organic process and a classical bootstrapping story, which I've, I've got a rice cooker here in the office, which I got for $5 from a thrift store. And uh, this thing is what kept the company running for a, a long time. And what happened was that the way I described how the company evolved from a staff perspective is that 
it's like splitting wood. And when you have a really large log, you have to cleave off the outer edges of it before you could try to split the log down the middle because it's just too thick. So with all the responsibilities associated with a business in the beginning, I did all of them because I didn't have any funding. I do not come from a wealthy family. I just had to figure it out. And I might not have been that good at certain things like bookkeeping, but I did them because there was just no other option. There was no money to hire somebody to do it. So as the business grew, as it evolved, and I just kept putting money back into it, then I was able to cleave off from that log those things that other people would be better at. So starting with bookkeeping, I got myself a part-time bookkeeper. Uh, I brought somebody on in order to do Windows troubleshooting, which was not my expertise. My focus was in was in Apple and Google. So I was able to do what I did best. And over an eight-year period of time, and ended up with that uh, log being split up into enough pieces so that the core, which is actually running the business, is the only thing that I was left doing. Uh, but that did take a while to to grow that team. Yeah, I love the log analogy. How did you bill for what you sold, essentially? We we're very much hourly for most of our revenue. Uh, and clients would be on a month-to-month basis. They would either be on a fixed amount of time at the beginning of the month that's in a bank for a bit like being on retainer with a with an attorney or people would just call us when things break and then we would do the work and then we would send them a bill uh, and that's the way the model began but over time it did evolve and we we diversified the sources of our revenue over time how do you mean we focused more on recurring revenue services so in in our industry of being an IT services provider we because we know the industry and we're the trusted partner of our clients, we can look at the industry, look at the problem they're trying to solve, and then recommend a solution. And we partner up with those companies that offer those solutions. So let's let's take antivirus as an example. We are a partner for Bitdefender. So we pay X number of dollars per license per month for Bitdefender antivirus. Now, then we go to the client and say, hey, we vetted out all of these different antivirus services and we consider this to be the best. And here's the monthly fee for it. And then there's a margin on that. So take that and apply that same concept to email, to backup services. And that's where you start moving more towards a, a sustainable financial model because there's a foundation of recurring revenue services that you know you can guarantee will come in every month. And then the hourly work, of course, is still important, and as is hardware sales, but they become less important because you can depend on, on a foundation. How would you describe the psychological impact of moving more to a recurring revenue model for you personally as the owner? It calmed me down. Honestly, uh, there was a lot of anxiety running a business where you uh, you only eat what you kill and you never know what kind of revenue you're going to actually get in any given month. And when, uh, you know, this at the point of sale, there were a dozen staff that needed to get paid. So payroll is going to run either way, whether we do billable time or not. So this was uh, helpful for me from a psychological perspective, just to keep calm because it decreased anxiety because it was consistent and I knew we could depend on that revenue. Uh, and it just kept growing month after month. You know, we would recommend voice over IP services that are cloud hosted uh, for a PBX and they're great services. We love them. We stand behind them and that's, that's our thing. And then we know on the back end, we're going to be able to receive that check every month without 
without having to hustle too, too hard. In addition, when I have employees come to me and say, Hey, Sean, I need a raise. Well, where's that going to come from? I can only bill them for a certain number of hours in any given week. So 40 hours in a work week, let's just say they built 20 of those hours. Can I, can I bleed a stone? Can I squeeze more time out of them to make more revenue in order to pay them more money? It's kind of hard to do and something's got to give at some point. So as our recurring revenue income increased, it was really helpful to keep up with the demands of staff to keep their pay increasing over time to keep that, keep their incentives up. Got it. What proportion of your revenue was, was recurring or from recurring sources by the time you actually sold the company? It was in the 20 to 30% range by the time of sale. Got it. And how did you handle the cash flow? Because of course, recurring revenue is great. Uh, but in your case, if you're reselling, you know, Bitdefender as an example, uh, you make the sale, you buy the license and Bitdefender sends you a check, what, 30, 45, 60 days later? It actually works backwards. We pay a wholesale fee to Bitdefender and then we charge the client out for what that monthly service is going to cost. So as long as we could keep up on our accounts receivable, then cash flow is not an issue. Um, either way, we're going to pay out on the wholesale cost of that license. And the only time it gets a little tricky is when you get a price break at those different tiers of licensing. So when we move from, let's say, 250 licenses up to 500, that's going to give a price break because a company like Bitdefender wants to incentivize a partner to have lots of seats. So they, they offer it at a decreased price per month if you break a certain threshold. Got so, it. which makes it more difficult to start off with because you're paying a higher dollar amount wholesale for that license than if you were a huge company. That's why the bigger players in this game make more money because they have economy of scale on their side. Got it. So there's there's incentives for them in place just to scale up and and uh, and and be able to buy more licenses in bulk and get a better margin. Tell me a little a little bit about why you wanted to sell this company. Uh, sounds like you're relatively early in. I think you said eight years. What? That's what, correct. What what triggered you to want to sell? Reflecting about who I am and what I enjoy, uh, I came to realize that I enjoy starting things and I enjoy building things. I don't necessarily enjoy running things. That's a different interest and a different passion. So I wanted to make sure that the team here had somebody at the helm who really, really gets excited every morning to come into work and run a business. And I noticed over time after having done it for six, seven years that I wasn't as excited as I was. I still love my work. I love the team. I love the clients, but I didn't have that same kind of enthusiasm because I wasn't learning to such an extreme degree as I was in the beginning. I love learning new stuff. And if the learning curve is not as steep, then I don't feel as challenged. So for the sake of the team and for the sake of the clients and just the business as a whole, I thought it would be better to uh, see if I could find somebody who's excited about running a business and wants to take this thing that is well-established, has a great brand recognition, fantastic team, good business model, sustainable, profitable, and then take it and grow it to a factor of 10. And that's what the new, new buyer wants to do. And that excites me. I would love to come back five years from now and see this business be 10 times the size that it is now. 
Yeah, I think it'd be it'd be a fantastic legacy. Was there any part of you that thought you could you could scratch that itch for the new new thing by by doing something radical in your business, by buying another company or launching a big product or going into a new market or starting an office in another city? I mean, were did you contemplate getting that sort of getting your jollies, if you will, from some other big initiative other than selling? I had considered keeping the business. And the ironic thing is that my director of operations, Lori, who is amazing, I've known her for 20 years. We knew each other since college. And she's been, she's, she's really been the one who has helped to run this business these past three, four years. And she's done an excellent job, stood by me through all of this. And when I disclosed to her my plan, I said, you know, Lori, I, I want to do this other thing, which is actually getting onto a sailboat. I, that's what, that's the next step in my life. And that's why I needed to make space in my life to get on the sailboat and not be distracted. So I said to her what my goal was. And she said, why don't you just keep the business Sean? It's okay. You can still be the owner and I will run it. It's fine. Go sailing and make money because the business is profitable. You can make money and be on a boat and not feel bad. And I thought about this. I seriously considered it because it sounded very appealing. To make money and not have to do anything is kind of everybody's dream. However, I knew in the end, the buck was going to stop with me. So if the team decided to mutiny due to something that I had no control over and everybody quit one day, I would be the one holding the bag because I'm the owner. And I went through that scenario. I said, what's my worst case scenario? And it didn't sit well with me. I'd almost rather somebody engage with the business who will be there physically present every day and the team could look to as a leader. And if I'm not going to be there, it's just wouldn't feel right. Something about it just didn't feel ethically right to me. So I wanted to get out of the way so that there's room for the next person to come in and, and do their thing. From a financial perspective, it would have been far more beneficial for me to keep the business because given two or three more years of running it, I would have made as much as I made on the sale of the business. I want to get to that in a second. Just before, just for clarity, you, you refer to being on a sailboat. Is that a metaphor for something or are you actually aspiring to spend you know, an extended period of time sailing? I already bought the boat. So, so there's it's a that. real thing. Uh, okay. And I bought... It is it is a real thing. That is true. It's a 1982 Passport 40. It's located down in Florida. Uh, I'm in the process of moving all of my things onto the boat with, with Heidi and I are both moving onto the boat. And to be on a boat is a full-time job. You have to maintain the boat and so I am quite literally going sailing for the foreseeable future. So I said what you know what triggered you to want to sell the business and and you talked about you know not loving to run things, wanting to start things. Which sounds like something, which sounds like a legit sort of reason, but there was this other thing in the background, like your aspiration to go to something. So you were, in a way, you were being pushed out of the business by its sort of maturation, but in another way, you were being pulled by something, the, the boat. Is that fair? That is fair. That is fair. Because when I turned 30, I created a vision board. I'm a big fan of vision boards. I think that if you don't visualize what you want for your future, there's no way it can happen. Uh, and that's the hardest part. I think a lot of people don't even know what they do want. So then trying to attain that is is impossible. So when I was 30, uh, when I was living in New Zealand, I was an elementary school teacher and I made this, this vision board and there's certain things I put on there that were very specific. 
there were goals. Financial goals were on there. Business was on there. Being a professional was on there. And there was a huge picture of a sailboat smack dab in the middle of this thing. So it was clear that was what I wanted to do. And I had set a deadline for myself by the time I was 40. So I'm 39 and a half now. I turned 40 in December. So I'm right on target. And when did you sell the company? A month ago. <laughs> That's awesome. It is <laughs> right awesome. down to the wire. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to move to from sunny Boulder to, to Florida to sail. That's it until, until we continue on to the Caribbean and, and do the sailing thing until it's not fun anymore. Wow. And, and do you have kids? Do you have family? And <laughs> me as a guy with kids, I'm like, that sounds like the worst thing in the world, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I don't have kids. Good for you. I, I could definitely see it in the horizon. I'd love to. And uh, the idea of raising kids on a boat is, is just awesome to me. I would love to see that happen. And lots of people do it. And it's great for kids growing up on a boat. And uh, I'd imagine it's yeah, it would just be a fantastic reality. Yeah, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't diss it. I'm sure it'll be amazing. Uh, it'll be, a, it'll be an amazing life experience for sure. And and I think common among a lot of entrepreneurs, um, there there is this sort of, you know, in the back of their mind, they want to go, you know, go do something, go on a sabbatical, go on a trip, uh, you know, move cities. So in, in your case, you kind of have all those boxes ticked. So talk to us about the you know, the, the next step. So you decided you want to sell. I mean, what did you do? Did you hire a broker? Did you market it yourself? What was the next sort of step in the process? When the f thought first occurred to me, what I did is I went down to meet with front range business brokers. And those are the guys that I worked with to get the business listed and do all the negotiating for the sale. I met with them and they educated me on a lot of different aspects of what goes into a business sale. Many of many of these things I had never heard of or had not considered. What was because the most why surprising? Would I? What was the most surprising? Was the just the way that they structure it and the multiplier and how they determine valuation? I thought was really interesting. So give us give, like tell us what we don't know. So what what did they tell you about valuation and the way multipliers work? The seller's discretionary earnings is the number that they used in order to determine uh, what from that point is the multiplier and then the, the sale price of the business. So that's going to be what I paid myself in salary and then add to that what the business made in net profits and then add to that other benefits that I would have received from the business. Things like the business paying for my cell phone, the business paying for the car that I drove, uh, any other benefits that are ancillary benefits outside of normal pay. And I hadn't considered those as being things that actually added value to a business, but they do when I reflected on it, because those are, those are costs that I'm not incurring directly as a person. The business is paying for them, which is, is going to be the case with anybody who owns a business. The business will cover certain things like that. Uh, so when I learned all of those things, I went back to the business and instead of going and saying, Hey, I'm going to sell this thing and then somebody's going to grow it or, uh, finding somebody to run the business while I'm away. I knew that there was nobody else who can grow the business as well as I could. And I knew what I needed to do once I met with them. And this was two years ago. So I had quite a big on-ramp and I had a goal in mind. I said, okay, I understand how these numbers work. And these guys just told me what this valuation is. I want to put another hundred grand onto that valuation. So I'm, I'm going to do these things. So these are my financial goals that I'm going to put in front of myself for this next year. And then, and then we're going to reevaluate. 
So it had to begin with understanding how the system works, then going back with that knowledge and applying it in order to get the goal. Got it. So you you figured out, what did they tell you the business is worth when you met back when you were 38, the first meeting? Uh, it was... On a multiple of SDE. The multiple was the same. The multiples, it was, it was two and a half to three as a multiple of SDE. But the thing that I had control over changing was what the SDE was. What the E was, yeah. yeah. Correct, yeah. So I was, uh, what I did after that meeting is I immediately increased what, what my pay is on normal payroll because why not? If I pay myself more then somebody from the outside looking in is going to say, oh great, if I ran this business, I'm going to step into that salary. And these are, I had not perceived this scenario in this way before. I didn't put myself into the position of somebody outside of the business and what they would think and what they would want. So the process of learning all that stuff really helped me empathize and get into their shoes and say, well, how could I set this up so that this is really appealing to them from the outside without having the emotional attachment to it that I have? Because I love the business. I love the work. I love the clients. I love the team. But they're not going to have that same emotional attachment. They're going to look at it from a numbers perspective. What so else? how do I grow that? Got it. What else did you do to prepare to, to take it to market? I There were certain team members that needed to get cleaned up um, and also getting the team aligned in a certain way. I hired a business development person in order to grow our sales. So I knew she was going to require at least a year of on-ramp to get up to speed on her effectiveness and to get out there, know enough people, do the networking, understand her job, because that's what I was doing. That was the last piece of the log that I was still responsible for was business development. I would go out in the community. I served on committees, on boards, did a lot of fundraising stuff, uh, just to be an active and engaged member of the local community like you do, uh, being in the chamber and whatnot. So I needed to get her up to speed first because I knew business development is going to be critical. And I, I wanted as, as few things as possible to be dependent upon me. I also took a lot of vacations tons of vacation. I would take a week off every six weeks because I wanted to decrease the team's dependency upon me and make them more self-sufficient so that they can make decisions for themselves because they're all shockingly intelligent people and they can handle it and they could solve a problem if I'm not around. If I'm around, the easy thing to do is to come ask me because yeah, of course I'm going to know the answer because I've been doing it a long time. But when you're not there, it's not that they don't solve the problem. They just get to do it themselves. And that's what I observed for the past year and a half when I've been in the process of you know, moving the business to a place where it makes more sense to, to hand off. What would you say to an owner who, who just says, like, that's a pipe dream for me. Like, I am glad that you were able to take a week off every six, but there's no way I would be able to take off that amount of time. What, what advice would you give someone who pushed back like that? Being honest with yourself about how necessary you actually are. And some of it is going to come down to ego. And being somebody who's a founder, there's a lot of ego injected into the day to day life of of being a founder. And is there any way anybody could do this as well as I can? Because I started the business and well, are you right? Sure. Yeah, you're probably right. But is that going to benefit you in the long run? But it is an easy ego fix to say, I do this better than anybody on my team. But the way to really empower people is to have them be better at the job than you are. And you just create a vessel with which they can pursue their passion. 
Got it. So you take a lot of vacation, you improve the earnings of the business, you hire the biz dev person. A year goes by, you've improved earnings, then what? Do you go back to the guys at Front Range and say, we want to take this thing to market? Like, what was the next step? Sure did. Yeah. In October of 2016 is when I approached them. And it coincided with, of course, life event falling in love because that had to happen in order for me to know that I had a partner to go onto this boat with because I wasn't going to do it on my own. So that needed to happen. That was the trigger where I said, okay, now it's time. Dude, you're a it's newlywed and you're going on this boat. <laughs> this is getting really thick now. It's, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> That's great. Uh, good. Okay. So you, you, so a life event, obviously you're getting married. So more sort of acceleration to the fuel to the fire, so to speak. What next? Exactly. Did they go market the business and, and, and find a buyer? Like how did, how did that come about? They created a description of the business, uh, uh, I guess a brochure, best way to describe it, that said, here's the history, here's the brand, here are the numbers. And they put it out on the market. They put it out on the market in October. We knew because it was the holiday that there's probably not going to be a lot of traction that's going to happen between October, November, and December. And it was what we thought. Not a lot happened, but then come January, come February, then a lot more motion happened. So we got more inquiries. And by the time all was said and done, there was somewhere in the order of 60 total inquiries for this business specifically. And then from that, my broker narrowed down the, uh, that, that pool of people down to five or six parties who we considered offers from. Uh, and, and all of them had, had their strengths. Uh, some of them had some flags where it said, you know, you're probably not going to succeed as well at this as we would like. So this might not be the best fit. Why did, why did you care if they were going to succeed or fail? I cared because of the team. I, I felt, an, I felt, and I still do feel uh, an ethical responsibility to them to make sure that they continue to do what they do well in a safe environment, structured in much the same way that they're used to. Because fact is they took the job because they believe in how the company does what it does. Yeah, they probably liked me too, and they like the work. That's all great, but people do things because they believe in them. So, so what, these guys are here for that purpose, and I just wanted to keep that continuity as much as possible. What would you tell an entrepreneur who is going through the sale process for the first time and they're looking at their first few letters of intent, their first few offers? What, what are some of the things they should be, the red flags they should be looking at or things that they should consider in, in evaluating the offers that are coming in? Most of it has to do with culture fit and humility. And the reason why we went with the buyer that we did, he was very intentionally chosen, was that he came in very humble. And he was not the highest offer, dollar amount wise. But he had good experience. He had a positive attitude. His, his life as a whole, where he was in his just life cycle, I guess, is, was good, well aligned in his mid thirties, just gunning for it. And family man, very kind, positive, quick to smile, really just fit with the team and, and, and the, the vibe we're in Boulder. I can say vibe. It's cool. Uh, the vibe of the team and the team actually interviewed him before we pulled the trigger before we closed the deal, which is very unusual in a business deal. Normally it's a bit like horse trading. You just go there, you pay the money, you have no idea who the team is. And that um, from his perspective, I'd imagine would be really scary. Cause what if they hate him? What was the reaction of your team? 
I only let two people in the team in on what was happening early. And the reason for that is because they had been with the team for a while. They were pretty key players as well in the team. And they had mixed feelings. You know, they were happy for me because they want me to do fun, great things and move on to the next thing. They were worried. They were worried because it's uncertainty and everybody's concerned about uncertainty uh, because it's the unknown. And then when the whole team was was notified and let in on the, the, the big secret, they they really had two questions. They, uh, question one, will I keep my job? Question two, is anything going to change? And thankfully, the answers were what they wanted to hear. Yes, you do keep your job and no, nothing's going to change. And and Brett uh, is a very wise guy and he's he's the, the buyer. He came in with the wisdom to know that he's not going to change anything until he understands what it is that he's changing, which is exactly what you want to do. So you mentioned you got five offers for the business. Brett's was not the best offer, but you ultimately went with it. I'd be interested to know of the five offers, what was the the gap or the biggest, you know, the difference between the lowest offer and the highest offer on a percentage terms? There was about a 10% swing. Oh, wow. So very close. Very close. Very close. The, the biggest difference would have come from the earnout. And an earnout, it's it's a wide range of possibilities with an earnout. And uh, an earnout can either really be a fantastic thing for you, or it could go really poorly. So as a seller, you're pretty much investing in the risk of the business and its future, which is not preferable as a seller because it is a lot more risky because you don't know about the competency of the person who's buying the business. You do the best you can to understand how professional they are, how well they're going to do, and you, and, and you hope they succeed. But once the papers are signed, it's not in your hands any longer. Got it. So the decisions they make are going to affect you financially. So from my perspective, I wanted to keep it as simple as possible. And the other advantage of Brett's offer was that it was simple. It was, here's the amount, here's what I think it's worth. It's a little bit less than what you asked, but it's still fair. And here's how I want to break down those payments. And I said, great, that's perfect. Nice and clean, nice and clear for me. And the reason why I'm um, selling the business is because I want to move on to something else and not have to think anymore about this project. So talk to us about, so, so the ultimate, the, the overall selling price was in the sort of two and a half to three times SDE? You got it. Range? Okay. So of that two and a half to three times SDE, uh, what proportion were, were you offered kind of payment upfront? Payment upfront was about 80% of the total sale amount. And that remaining 20% was put into a note. So as the seller, I was backing that portion of the sale. And this was this was good for the bank. The bank loved this because it gives them some semblance of confidence because if the seller feels good about financially backing the deal, then they feel better as well. The bank is still going to be first position because they're a bank. That's what they do. I'm still going to subordinate to them. Uh, and then also there's a two-year ramp up time where the buyer is not making any payments to me. 
And that was what the bank put in as a stipulation to ensure that from a cash flow perspective, the buyer is still going to be able to make the payments to the bank first and foremost. Then after a couple of years of, of, of doing that, having some stability, then he can start payments to me to pay me off the rest of the amount, which suited me just fine. And then it's going to be an exciting surprise two years from now when I start getting those payments. It'll be it'll be awesome. Yeah, great. So um, let's just refocus this. So so Brett, the buyer, went to a bank and, and borrowed the money to buy your business. And he would have put in some cash, I guess, of his own, plus some bank finance. Do you happen to know sort of what proportion of the deal he was able to come up with on his own versus what he had to finance? He, from what I understand, he came up with between a quarter and a third of the cash down payment in order to get going with the business because he needed more than just that sale amount. He also needed operational cash to have in the bank just to run the business. And that dollar amount he determined by doing cash flow projections based on reports that I shared with him. Uh, so let's see. And it was an SBA 504. I think loan for, or it might, folks, might have been a seven A. Yeah, so for folks in not in the United States listening, SBA Small Business Administration is as a loan program that they essentially guarantee some loans for in in some cases for small businesses under certain circumstances. This happens to be be one of them, so that's interesting. Correct. Um, good. So that's how you got the deal done. So you took a twenty percent uh, vendor take back out of interest. What's the what's the percentage? interest you get on the 20%. I mean, we're in such a low interest environment. I'm imagining it's pretty low. It's a 6% interest rate on the note. Got it. And so, is that 6% start right away, even though there's no requirement to pay uh, any of the note off for two years? Or does it kick in after two years? It kicked in the day of closing. And that was something that I needed to have negotiated on the APA, the asset purchase agreement previous to closing to make sure that that, that would be there. Because otherwise, I'd be losing money on that money that I wasn't paid, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Sure, sure. So, you're, it's basically the amount of money you've lent if essentially to Brett is increasing all, all the time up until he starts paying it off in, in a couple of years. That's correct. Got it. Well, it's fascinating to get that level of detail into you know, what is a very common way that, that smaller companies are spot and sold, which, is, which usually involves some sort of financing and, and some sort of you know, vendor take back you know, using industry lingo for when the owner, you, lend a little bit of money to the buyer. But you got 80% of your money up front, uh, which is great. And so, what was the... Th I mean, it sounds like a pretty... You know, we're on this show. We're used to hearing all these crazy stories of you know acrimonious uh, you know sales. It sounds like in your case, it was a pretty good sale. I mean, is there as you look back on the negotiation, uh, is there one thing that you might do differently if you had it to do over again? That's an interesting question because the the reason why this deal went as smooth as it did. And the broker described that as goodwill. And every deal is going to have a certain amount of goodwill. And that's really comes down to how much trust each party has in the other party. And when people get lawyered up, then the trust decreases because they get defensive. And just like in any relationship, showing vulnerability first is helpful when it comes to growing trust. I did that in the very beginning. Before we even signed the asset purchase agreement, 
Brett had asked me about numbers. He said, hey, I want to see these financial reports and these financial reports. And I said, you know what, Brett? Here's a login to QuickBooks. Go for it. Which just never happens with a deal. And my broker said, are you sure you want to do that? I said, yeah, I have nothing to hide. He's welcome to go into QuickBooks and poke around and run whatever report he wants. That's totally fine. He's coming into this. This is going to be his business. I want him to go into it with eyes open and understand as much as he can before he puts pen to paper. So I don't feel bad as if wool was pulled over his eyes. Uh, so that was step one in building trust with him, in addition to introducing him to the team and bringing him in two weeks before closing to the business to meet the team get some training going, which again was very unusual for a deal. Um, that is a double-edged sword. When you give somebody access to financial data, but they don't necessarily have the experience or context to be able to know how to accurately interpret that data, there could be problems. Now, with this business, there's a, a very specific way with which the, the cycle of money comes through. So, the P&L in any given month is going to have certain cycles. So at the first of the month, we're working on closing the previous month. But it doesn't close until maybe 10 days after the first of the month. So therefore, there's 10 days of anxiety because you're staring at the P&L, freaking out, thinking that we're in the red for whatever the previous month is, when in actual fact, all the billing is still not complete. We haven't charged for all the licenses yet. So I had to train myself over a number of years to not get anxious until then the month is totally closed. And so, you, so you're having to get, did you give this kind of coaching to Brett so that he understood how to interpret the numbers? I did, but the problem is it still didn't, it didn't help enough. I don't think I did a good enough job of helping him understand the numbers because the problem is he drew conclusions based on what he can see, which were, you would imagine, very black and white measurable uh, conclusions. But I saw it differently because I said, oh, I understand these one-time expenses that have come in. Let me help you understand this. But the problem is I intervened way too late because he had drawn his conclusion and he said, hey, I'm kind of freaked out. These numbers freak me out. I, I don't know if the business is doing well. I'm like, no, here's what's going on. Let me educate you. Let me help you understand this. So in retrospect, in conjunction with giving a potential buyer access to the books, it's very important to make sure that they have enough context to be able to know how to interpret the books Got it. Yeah. before they draw their own conclusions and freak out because business is scary. Cash flow is scary. Having to make payroll is scary. And when you're going from zero to 60 like he did, because when somebody is purchasing a business, they don't have the benefit of an on-ramp. I've had eight years of buildup to get used to the stress associated with having to make payroll and the month closing. And now for you know, this, the sales we have in any given month are equivalent to the, the annual sales uh, the second or third year of the business. I mean, we, we've grown by tenfold in the matter of five or six years. So, but I've been able to do that gradually. He's coming right into it, which I, I have a lot of respect for him for having the, the, the calm, the maturity, the professionalism to be able to deal with that volume of business and that level of complexity right out of the gate. Yeah, no, it's, it sounds like you found a, a, a great match in, in Brett and, and he's going to do well with the business. Um, 
I guess I was going to ask what sort of trophy you bought yourself after the check cleared, but I think I know the answer to this already. <laughs> You bought your boat. <laughs> the, you know, the, the irony is that I had bought the boat two months before. <laughs> that's that's how trusting the I am in the universe. <laughs> well, we, yeah. I wish you I wish you all the best on your your trip around the world. What um what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they wanted to get in touch? Do you do you accept like LinkedIn invitations or do you have a website you want to point people to? Sure. LinkedIn is great. Um, active on LinkedIn. There's a bunch of articles on there that I've written in the past for BizWest, running in the range from IT things to really even man- general management of a company. Uh, those those articles will be on there too. And then sailingbreeze.com because the name of the boat is Breeze and I've got sailingbreeze.com. It's, that website should be up in the next few months. Oh, we'll have to check you out there. Well, thanks, uh, thanks again for joining us, Sean. It was great to know you. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.